Hey everyone, in this episode we'll be mentioning rape and sexual assault, so listener discretion is advised. Once you've had a taste, nothing else will do. Today on Dumpster Book Club we're talking about Nightblood by Eric Flanders. I'm Sean. And I'm Mimi. And I'm Elaine? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Today, we are fortuitously joined by Elaine. It was not planned at all. And this book is a lot of different things <laughs> going on. None of them good. This cover really warned us what this book was going to be like. <laughs> it, there was no lying what the book was going to be like based on no, the cover. No, I totally disagree. I saw this book and I was like, you know what? This is going to be a fun book about a vampire <laughs> going around and meeting sexy ladies and just, you know, being a... I, I was not prepared for, like, a dense philosophy tract <laughs> <laughs> by yeah. an idiot. And even our main character on the cover looks like the ultimate bad boy vampire yes when i looked at this i imagined the vampire riding a motorcycle across america <laughs> getting babes yeah, <laughs> yeah that's but i did not imagine a lot of the things <laughs> he's also described as having a fine reddish hair over his chest back and butt in the book <laughs> And in this, he looks like he's relatively hairless, so that was a bit of a surprise. He's a, yeah, he's a little more Italian, European, as opposed to, like, Celtic, as I imagined I, him. He looks a little like a young Tom Cruise or John Travolta. He's got a leather jacket, totally bare chest underneath the leather jacket. And swooning, already bitten lady. Yeah. That never happens. <laughs> he never at any point in time has a good relationship with a woman. <laughs> there is one flashback sequence this could possibly refer to, but even, even that I would disagree with. But the flashbacks seemed to be before he was cool. That was like when he was wearing Argyle sweaters and like... <laughs> He matched his socks still. <laughs> Didn't even think about motorcycles. Well, there were no motorcycles in this, I don't think. No, he's got a 69 Cadillac. Yeah, the cars are a thing in this book. Except that's the only cool one. Like, the rest of them are not, like, <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm sorry, not to be a dickhead, but they didn't seem particularly cool well, to me. Well, I feel like Eric Flanders would be really upset with you. <laughs> <laughs> He's really into cars. I yeah. kind of wondered if he wrote this after watching The Lost Boys, which is a vampire film just a couple years earlier that was also really into car and motorcycle culture. Right. I really feel like he watched that and he was like, I could do this, but deep. And then he wrote <laughs> this and it was bad. This, this definitely, I think we'll talk about movies at the end, but I definitely feel Lost Boys plus Fright Night is like the movie. Yeah. And really, he was just a year late for Blade, which <laughs> is just a better version of all vampire stories. Yeah. 
so Eric Flanders is actually a pseudonym for the author James Kisner. Pretty much just writes horror. James Kisner does or yeah. is Eric Flanders? Okay. Both under both names. Mostly okay. a horror writer. He's from Indiana. He was born, raised, and died in Indiana. Okay, right. just a quick interruption. You can tell that because at one point he's like, oh, people think that people in the Midwest yeah. are just stupid, yeah. but the cities are here are just <laughs> as great as the ones on the East Coast. I'm like, I'm sorry, there is no New York in the Midwest. The second I read that, I knew he was from the Midwest and I looked it up and he me was. Me too, me too. Yeah, I was like, I wonder if this guy's from the Midwest because he's got a lot of thoughts about it. But then he portrays everyone in the Midwest like a horrible Midwest stereotype so well <laughs> write what you know <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> that was a pretty good burn that was a good one um so uh if you didn't already dislike james kisner enough from reading this uh i found a great quote from him too many writers are trying to write with too shallow an education. Whether they go to college or not is immaterial. A good writer needs a sense of the history of literature to be successful as a writer. Oof. Which, <laughs> I feel like that's pretty rich coming from the author of such fine literature as Hotter Blood, More Tales of Erotic Horror. <laughs> Predators... And Vampire Slayers, stories of those who dare to take back the night. Okay. Actually, I do have a partial list of all the references in this book. Oh. And it's... <laughs> and it's... This is a partial list. He references The Unseen Cosmos by Edward Pliny Smythe, The Longest Night, Zombie House, Linnea Quigley, Jungian Tuplas, <laughs> The Phantom of the Opera, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Nosferatu, The Marquis de Sade, Foibles of Rational Man by Savarod Minsky, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Twice, Sam Spade in the Maltese Falcon, Philip Marlowe in The Big Sleep, Christopher Lee, It Happened One Night, Shakespeare's Hamlet, The Big Sleep, Dante, Robert Silverberg, Pascal's Wager, and Evil Dead 3, which I do think I actually saw at your guys' house once, so mm -hmm. that was kind of funny. And Linnea Quickly was the naked girl in Return of the Living Dead we just watched. <laughs> <laughs> um, it seems a lot more like his influence is movies than literature, and I do think about vampire stories a lot. The original Dracula is like an interesting piece of literature because it's like written in an interesting way where it's all like all in letters and like it's kind of unique. And then everything after that is like the most plain, like boring form of storytelling. So it's I don't know. It's just interesting to me that Dracula is a kind of unique piece of literature and then everything it birthed is uh not. <laughs> yeah, Dracula's pretty metatextual. Like, there's actually a point in Dracula, everyone's been writing these things down, and they have one of the characters, Mina, they actually have her sit down, write everything out, and then everyone reads it. So there's, like, this weird element that it's like everyone in the novel is reading the novel and it's like there's all these letters and the beginning's basically just a travelogue where Jonathan Harker is like, I hate Eastern European food. <laughs> yeah, and like none of that carried over. It's like they learned the wrong lesson from Dracula. That's the point I wanted to say about these this list is he lists all these things and you guys have actually mentioned this in books before in the podcast where they just list better things. They just reference them they don't actually like take any of the interesting lessons like he really tries to associate his characters with certain 
genres and those characters don't act like characters from those genres they just have references to them like slapped mm-hmm. on yeah. i don't know i should talk about that later. well if you can't tell we all have a lot of feelings about this book that we're just <laughs> biting at the bit to like scream out into the podcast so this one might be a little bit ranty we might go off topic quite a bit we all really loved it we all had a really great time <laughs> and definitely no regrets about choosing this book <laughs> Um, no, yeah. Did you have more to say? Tell well, us more about Eric Flanders. Uh, <laughs> he and his wife both died yeah. from carbon monoxide poisoning. <laughs> I saw that and I was like, am I going to feel really bad about all the things I'm going to imply about him? <laughs> Silent killer. Yeah. Typically, you would use a pseudonym if you are embarrassed about something or like you're kind of slumming it or... I don't know. Is his other stuff a bit more refined, you would think? Um, no. Hotter Blood, More Tales of Erotic Horror, I think, is under James Kisner. Oh, so okay. Maybe Tower Eric Flanders is his, like, better stuff, then. <laughs> this was his second to last book, and this genuinely feels like a book where you've written enough books so your publisher stops trying to edit you so you're allowed to, like, put in your all your horrible, terrible thoughts that previously got edited out. Maybe all of his books are like this, but that's really what it felt like to me. Okay, did you guys look up Zebra, the the people who published this book? No. Okay. We will never run out of horror books. <laughs> They've published like hundreds and hundreds and they're all they all have covers like this amazing and all the books look awesome. Okay, wait, wait. Now I want to see. If you're this. all interested in like this kind of like <laughs> No, horror you should story. not be. <laughs> this, you'll never run out. Oh, no. Well, maybe they published some that were what I was hoping for, which is, like, fun and mindless, but, you know, with a quick plot and things keep on going <laughs> instead of this shit show. Check them out, Zebra. <laughs> <laughs> they, apparently they have, like, a cult following because all their covers are, like, so eye-catching. Oh, my God. Are they all, like, photographs? No, but they're all pretty intense. How did you guys find this book anyway? Where did we find this one? This one might have been Half Price Books. If you're looking for a horror book, it's like you pick the one that is not Stephen King or Dean Koontz. (laughs) You go to a store, there's a wall of Stephen King and Dean Koontz. You're like, okay, everyone has read all of these. And then there'll be, like, one book by someone else. And then, obviously, it looks awesome. (laughs) Yeah, no, Mimi asked me, she was like, would you be interested in this book? And I was like, yeah, I love this book. And then I read it and I was like, I don't love this book. No. Um, So the book starts with one of those little teasers that's supposed to get you into the book. And I loved how the little paragraph just ends with sucking, sucking. (laughs) Really gets you ready. Also, the prologue, like the, the like prologue proper it says a few months ago in East Texas, which means I'm going to assume all of this was taking place in the year 2019 and everyone's just extremely incompetent. The era is actually very confusing to pin down because it is very 90s. But yeah. then a lot of the dialogue he writes feels like the 70s, which I feel like is sort of his ignorance of how real people talk. <laughs> And his, like, love of movies, I think. Right. And then there's these weird times when he describes things 
in terms that feel anachronistic to me. He, he was describing something as like blurry, but he used the word pixelated, which I don't know if that is like a word you would use to describe something for anything other than computers. Yeah, no, like a, is it a photograph? What is that? No, it wasn't about the like photographs. Like they were like in a misty forest, but he says it like looked pixelated. <laughs> That's what you see if you're a cyborg and you have cyborg yeah, eyes. Like, I, I don't know if that has an origin other than in computers, but it felt wrong to have in a story that was not about computers. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe all the dialogue is just... The dialogue is just definitely him not understanding how humans talk Is that just what... It is bad. Is that just the Midwest in the 90s? I think dialogue is tough. It's hard to get right. <laughs> well, all the dialogue was incredibly awkward and not how people speak. You did me real good, real good. Better than Earl? He ain't nothing compared to you. <laughs> so you can see he's really giving his characters a lot of depth and nuance here and having a lot of empathy for the vampire victims. <laughs> the actual prologue features two cops. They're like heading out to like a lover's lane type of area to break up couples. And they just talk to each other back and forth, saying about like what they're gonna do. And it's like they're just two officers doing their duty. Just another day at the teenage sex factory. <laughs> and it kind of just felt like one of them's like, "Oh, hello, fellow officer. We might get to peep some teenage boobies." And the other officer just. Oh, uh, but I don't want to see any wieners. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This author is really into teenagers fucking. I mean, it's a horror. (laughs) That also felt like the 70s, like where all the 70s horror films just have like naked teenage girls everywhere for only pervert reasons, honestly. Again, I feel his movie influence is is there. But he feels really into it. I'm sorry, like, I don't want to get you guys, like, sued, but... (laughs) Well, the way he describes the entire town is also very into it. It's like such like a sacred tradition in this town. It's this place where everyone knows that everyone goes to have sex. It like talks about like, oh, it's a tradition in the family. Fathers advise their sons. And if you go up there, you can't say you were raped at all because you knew what you were getting into. There's a lot of rape in this book. I, I feel like rape is a part of vampires, but that seems like he was just throwing it out there. Like, is, there's no need to be like, and it's not rape up there because you know what you're getting into. Like, he didn't need to say it at all. Like, that part did not need to be there. We already know everyone knows about the place. Uh and it's like, it's not even just one character is really into teenagers having sex. It's like multiple characters are right. like, that is that is the ideal. So you can't even be like, oh, it's just this one character and they're like a pedophile or something. It's like, no, this is, that's the ideal age, apparently. But I also feel like this is like the last warning. Like you got the cover <laughs> and then you got you got the intro with the sucking. And then you get this like first like five page paragraph of just some cops trying to peep some teenage sex and then they see a headless body and it's like okay i'm warning you this is like one two three this is gonna be in the book this is what's gonna be like stop here if you don't want it yeah 
Um, and then we kept going. Yeah. <laughs> no choice. Also, they did do that thing where it's like they describe the body and it's like blood is just fucking everywhere. And I was like, I know I'm going to hate this vampire because he's wasteful. He just chops off someone's mm-hmm. head and wastes all of his food. It's like he took a box of crackers and threw it on the ground and then ate one cracker. It took so long to get to that payoff. I was like, when are they going to explain this? And it's like the end of the book. And even then it was a little ambiguous. Like I was reading that part and I was like, is this the same thing? Or is he like just returning to this place? It This whole book was really badly. The information was not conveyed well. So then we get part one, which is always fun when your book has parts. Uh, but this book, the parts are different. <laughs> and part one called Driving America, is all about Val Romero, who is our vampire. And I would say telling a story from a vampire's perspective was a mistake. This whole section, this whole, all of part one should not have been there. I read this and I was like, as an editor, I would have like just cut it out. I think it would have been way better, actually, if you just cut anything with Val Romero out. If he was just a villain that you like, you could develop the other characters way more. You wouldn't have all this fucking awful philosophy. And also, he would actually be more sympathetic if you weren't seeing inside his <laughs> exactly. terrible, terrible mind all you the time. You have, like, one or two moments of him, like, looking sad or something. And he'd be so much more fascinating of a character. I think someone can do a story from a vampire's perspective. Not I mean, Eric Flanders. No. But yeah, that, that's for, like, a vampire re- yeah. came out in the 70s, and I feel like he was echoing that, where it's like, oh, it's going to be this pathos-filled vampire, but then it was like... Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also am not quite sure what he was trying to achieve with this section, because it shouldn't have been there at all, but it seemed like he was trying to establish, like... Val as his ultimate cool guy. He's got it his like his cool car and his leather jacket and his eight inch dick when flaccid. <laughs> that was uh, this this book is full of like whoa moments. And that was the biggest one where it's like got an eight inch dick when it's flaccid. <laughs> They describe him in a way that I think is supposed to make him seem really cool, but I genuinely was imagining him as Tommy was so this whole time, the way he's described. It was... Well, I think the problem was that if he had started with, like, the ultimate cool guy, bad boy character, and he's, like, our bad guy, and then slowly we find out later that he has like vulnerabilities or weaknesses he could have developed some kind of arc or something (laughs) or like we learn more about him or something but instead it's like he's super cool but also he's very emotional just exploring all of his weaknesses right at the very beginning every vampire story they gotta like have their spin on what vampires can and can't do So we get Eric Flanders, which is, he is affected by the sun. He does need blood. He does need soil from his, like, birthplace or native country. He is super strong. He also has random superpowers. (laughs) Now and then. Why not? (laughs) He's got the hypnosis. He is not affected by holy symbols. You can't see him in a mirror if you believe he's a vampire. (laughs) Yeah. But if you don't believe he's a vampire, you can see him in a mirror. Garlic doesn't work because that's just stupid. (laughs) He 
really explored and commented on vampire lore without adding anything. There was no point to it. It didn't add anything interesting to the book. There was no like reason for him to pick his version of vampire lore and say what he thought was dumb about it. This is like actually really common in shitty vampire books where they're like, oh, well, I'm taking these parts of the lore, but the rest of the lore can't be because it's stupid. But then this is even more nonsensical than usual because they say, oh, you can't see him in a mirror because of like a weird psychology thing. Like you're never entirely sure if it's a human thing or just Val, but apparently like all vampires do it. So whatever. But then what makes no sense is... If you're changing the mirror thing to be like, oh, that's a psychological thing instead of like a sense, like a representation of a loss of soul or something, he also does not show up in like photographs. He doesn't show up in cameras, which makes no sense. It's like, is he vibrating too much for the (laughs) shutter speed? Like, do cameras just not work on him because he's like a hologram? What the fuck is going on here? But like, the mirror thing is psychological, but... Also cameras, because why not? Why the fuck not? It just seems like it's useful to him to be like, oh, that's why they can't track him down, because he doesn't show up in cameras, but that doesn't even come up. They're, no. I don't think they even say at any point. So it's like yeah. this totally useless detail that makes no fucking sense. Him just sitting there philosophizing on being a vampire and explaining all his different weaknesses and strengths is all pointless because it's none of it ever gets used no one ever tries to use a holy symbol on them and it doesn't work no one ever tries garlic no one ever looks in a mirror and like doesn't see him it mentions the native dirt but no one ever like tries to take it away or like do anything with it he doesn't even get killed by the sun he just someone just lights him on fire and that kills him we never mentioned fire (laughs) (laughs) um i'm not like a vampire expert but Is it true that, like, the reason you can't see a vampire in a mirror and, like, old photographs of vampires don't work because of the silver? That's one theory that's kind of brought up. And silver is historically associated with having more general anti-evil properties. I personally kind of suspect it's because it has antimicrobial and antibacterial properties. Garlic has the same thing, and it kind of is treated in the same way. Mm -hmm. So it's, like, this general idea that it can repel evil. That's echinacea. Yeah, kind of. (laughs) Like, (laughs) probably. But that's, like, one theory that comes up. And another theory is it's an idea that it's, like, vampires aren't actually supposed to be people. Mirrors and sort of cameras by extension is supposed to be this sort of, like, representation of self or this, like, recreation of self. And if a vampire isn't a real person then it's not going to show up in a mirror. So there's, like, different ideas floating around. I don't think anyone's ever really, like, pinned one down. I always read it as sort of metaphorical, like, the loss of soul kind of deal. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's why people always, like, that's the one people flip-flop on so much is because they either don't understand the further meaning of it, and there's, like, oh, that's... That's dumb. <laughs> I can see them right here. <laughs> or they, or they kind of get that it like it's a little more than literal. Right. I don't think Eric Flanders put that much thought into it. Well, I think his point was to uh, when he decided to write the story, he wanted to tell a literal vampire story was part of what he wanted mm. to do, which is always like a funny decision people make. It's like I want to make it literal, which is like, well, why? <laughs> 
Also, that, that also brings up the question of, like, calorie counting. It's like, that's the first thing my mind goes to when you're like, I want to do a literal vampire story. It's like, okay, then the first thing you probably need to do is sit down and figure out how many liters of blood a day your vampire needs right. to consume. <laughs> I bet you that exists, too. I, <laughs> someone's probably figured it out. And it's going to be a lot. He actually kills a fair amount for a vampire in a vampire story. But I think it would still be more than that if you have an entirely liquid diet. They never mention that his your intestines change once you become a vampire because you don't have solid food anymore. I would like to mention my favorite vampire story is Martin. It's a Romero film. And it's very literal where the guy's just a serial killer who's got like a blood thing. And everyone around him thinks he's a vampire and treats Ooh. him like a vampire. It's It's really good. That's actually enjoyable because one of the things that annoyed me in this book is it basically occurs to no one that he's a vampire, <laughs> which only works. I mean, it works basically for like the very first three Western vampire literature thing, which is Count Ruthven, Carmela, which is my favorite, and Dracula. And then after that, Dracula made vampires such a thing in like the consciousness. Even if you don't believe in vampires, if someone's like sucked dry of blood, you're going to immediately be like, ah, either someone who thinks they're a vampire or, like, something along those lines. Like, no one in this book thinks of it. They're like, mm, people just totally drained of blood with puncture holes in their necks. Yeah, it's like never saying zombie in a zombie movie. It's like, the thought's there. You can just say it. <laughs> we exist in <laughs> We all know already. Yeah. But... There were so many, like, investigators and forensic people, but, like, no investigation whatsoever took place in this story. Uh, so It's very Batman detective work where it's like, I just figured it out. <laughs> I just know where he is. You couldn't guess from the way we're sort of dancing around. These first 70 pages have no plot. It's just he randomly murders people you don't care about. You don't care about him either. And then he has this these horrible, horrible, like, philosophical rants that are, like, really easy to deconstruct and not even interesting. And he's supposedly millions of years old. So you'd think he'd be beyond this basic shit by now, but Very no. Very 14-year-old. Yeah. I mean, are, do you guys feel like plot happens? I sure didn't. No, I mean, we don't even meet any other characters the first 70 pages of the book. Mm -hmm. All of part one. It's just Val. Um, kind of how I thought the first, like, three things were warnings. I do feel like these first 70 pages, this is still me reading this, imagining this author is like, got a plan, he's going to do something. <laughs> oh, naive. Yeah, I, I was trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. Uh -huh. So while I was reading this, is like, okay, he knows you're reading this for a vampire story, he knows you want some sex and violence, so he's just throwing it all out there right away. And then once we get to part two... We're going to get the real story. We're going to, it's going to start. This is just like him, like giving the masses what they want. That's a little bit true. The plot does start in part two. <laughs> it does, but he continues. He yeah. doesn't stop doing <laughs> other stuff. Um, I did want to mention there was a little idea in the first part that I did like, which was the toy demon, which was part of that whole mirrors thing is the only reflection he could see of himself was a toy demon in the eyes of his victims. So uh, mm, that was the only right. time he ever saw himself. And I thought it was interesting. I was like, oh, okay, where is he going to go with this? And what he's going to do is he's going to forget about it and never mention yeah. it again. <laughs> I thought that was going to be like the main theme of the book is like him chasing this like image of himself and like trying to regain his soul or something. Yeah. Or I kind of thought like, oh, maybe there's going to be some part in this where it's like, 
it's somehow associated with hell, and it's like you somehow become possessed. Like, I think yeah. your idea sounds better, but I thought that was going to come to something, too. And it was an interesting idea, and uh, it just gets left there. And he does spend a lot of time, well, not a lot, but a fair amount of time developing it in the I first mean, part. I mean, everything feels like he spends a lot of time with it, <laughs> because there's, like, no editing. He just, like, goes on and on, like, rambling for pages about everything. Yeah, you're right. He does, like, sort of talk about it. He, yeah, Val watched the toy demon in her eyes, et cetera, et cetera. Perhaps she was too dull and bovine of character for the demon to make an impression. Yeah, it does seem like he's going to go somewhere. And then he doesn't. Never brought nope. up again. And then, so the other thing that this part one develops is that Val has a code. Sometimes. <laughs> Val has a code. <laughs> right. And at this point, it still could be like, okay, he's, you know, he's a sociopath or something, and he thinks he has a code or whatever. But yeah. No, the, Eric Flanders thinks yeah. it's the code. And the code itself is a little bit like, it's pretty forgiving code in the first place. Mm-hmm. So the code is, if you believe that you're a sinner, it's okay to kill you. That's what he says the code is, but... And, and then, then, yeah, he doesn't even follow it. No, he doesn't at all. <laughs> the other unstated part is that if you're fat, it's okay to kill <laughs> Is that yeah. even unstated? It seems pretty stated. <laughs> That's like the... Gluttony is the ultimate sin in Val Romero's so, eyes. So, the thing that was insane, which I do not think Eric Flanders even realized, there's that section where Val is, like, just on a killing spree... And, like, just overindulging in blood that he doesn't need. And it's in the middle of that section where he meets a fat person and starts talking about how disgusting oh, it is. That they're true. so gluttonous and, like, what? that's the worst thing. And yeah. like, but with zero reflection on Val's behavior. Yeah, that's... And it, it wasn't even a statement, but that's totally true. That's crazy. No, there's so much of it that really feels like that. And also, the fat thing was really weird to me because he is supposedly... Like, you sort of get his backstory, and he's supposed to be around since humans existed. So this guy is literally millions of years old. But his code, like, in particular, the fat thing, like, not to get too into the history of, like, the ideal body shape, but <laughs> the idea of being really thin of as being an ideal is only, like, a hundred years old. And that's because... Basically, the ideal body shape is whatever shows you are rich. And it was only right. in the last 100 years that being thin was being a way of representing you were rich. And that sort of increased with time. So if he is a literally million-year-old being, and let's say he is, like, somehow affected by, like, human traits and stuff, you don't think you don't think it would be erased in 100 years that probably, like, being more, like, you know, on the plump side would be considered attractive because it shows you're not starving to death as you dig in the earth for, like, an extra carrot or something. <laughs> and also, he... The other thing he really hates is sex. Like, specifically any sex that he considers deviant, which is... Yeah, he has, he has like, a lot of hang-ups about sex. Yeah, non-heterosexual sex or sex that isn't, like, inside a marriage like, basically, you can be a straight couple having, like, missionary sex in your bedroom, and that is the only way you are allowed to have sex, and everything else is a sin that he is allowed to horribly murder you for. I've, I really got the sense that Eric Flanders was, like, both just, like, a major pervert, but also incredibly repressed. 
Oh, I have an argument that I'll bring up. I believe that Eric Flanders is inserted into every single character. <laughs> every single character in this book is Eric Flanders. <laughs> is everyone clear on the code? Does well, everyone know no, exactly no, who no, it's okay to kill and it's not okay to Because <laughs> the other example of him and his code and following the code. Oh, yeah. He's also telepathic. So Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes he's telepathic. He comes across like an arguing couple. And it's like, oh, that wife is like so nagging and she's so annoying. Yeah. So he murders her, but... He, the entire time, he's, like, reading the mind of the husband who's, like, seriously considering murdering his wife. But Never Val's crosses like, his mind. Yeah, like, he's like, yeah, I could get behind that. <laughs> the sinner is the wife. But that is historically accurate. <laughs> to Dracula. <laughs> oh, to Dracula. Oh, that's true. <laughs> um, so there's, there's a great story of Vlad the Impaler who's, like, you know, people say yeah, he's yeah. Dracula. Uh, where he, he like wander around his villages and just like kill people. And so he saw a guy who had a, you know, shitty clothes. He's like, your wife isn't making you good clothes. And so he killed the guy's wife. <laughs> and the guy's like, you killed? That was my wife. <laughs> but see, in that version, the guy actually acts like a normal person. <laughs> yeah. Of the, yeah, that, okay, that, I think we're, we keep on referring to this one section that happens in like, I think it's part three where he like kills a bunch of people in one go and just there is a lot in that section and it's like the husband was delighted to see his wife die it's just it's one of those books where i read it and i was like oh this is kind of like normal like sort of you know sexist stuff but as time goes on you're sort of like flanders kind of feels like a genuine misogynist like i think he genuinely hates women and is like women are these horrible bitchy nags who always want sex like which is sexy but evil and so they deserve to be killed like okay actually in part one there is one character i like one and it's this woman who it's kind of ambiguous if she's a sex worker or not she might be but she might also just be pretending and this and then like she gets this guy and he like tries to force her to have sex so she hits him over the head with like a pipe and starts stealing from him and i'm like yes i love this character she's Uh, great and val swoops in with his code and immediately kills her and then he's like oh maybe i shouldn't have killed her but he like feels bad about it for like a little bit and then he's like oh whatever and it's not super convincing because Val also loves killing sex workers. Yep. So that brings up a very common theme in this book is that there are a lot of long descriptions of people and locations that we only see once. If we're introduced to just a random victim of Val, he'll tell us what they're wearing, tell us what they look like, <laughs> tell us what they're feeling, kill them, and then never mention them again. And a lot of those descriptions were like R.L. Stein, where it's like he was wearing brown shoes and yeah. like his everything was this color and like just. I have a quote here. Uh, so this is introducing the motel clerk at a motel he stays at. He does not even kill her. He just <laughs> pays for a room and leaves, <laughs> and we never see her here from her again. Okay. Her voice, an uneasy cross between rasp and a chirp. She was past 60, wearing trifocals and tortoiseshell frames on a heavily rouged face. Her hair seemed twisted up from her neck and piled on top of her head by a very careless hairdresser. It was dyed an orange color, reminiscent of faded carpets. 
She was short and obese, with flab hanging from her bare arms, which protruded from a flowered blouse that pretended to be silk, but smelled strongly of polyester. The top two buttons of the blouse were open, revealing an expanse of mottled cleavage that seemed about to cave in on itself. He always describes female victims about two to three times like longer than the way he describes the male victims, and it always describes their boobs. Unless he sees them from behind, and thus there is, you cannot, you literally cannot see their boobs. Otherwise, no matter what their age or position or how much it has to do with anything, the boobs are going to be described. Yeah, this woman is 60, and it's like, really gotta focus in on that cleavage, flabby arms. (laughs) And being unsexy is like one of the primary sins in this. Like you can tell he definitely thinks that's a sin. And so when he describes these people as like physically unattractive to him, that means it's more okay for him to kill Mm -hmm. them. And it's not just Val that feels this way. You really get the feeling Flanders feels this (laughs) way too, which is, I don't mind characters who are like terrible people. I don't mind characters where it's like, they have ideas that I think are, like, awful or strange. But you want the author to be aware that the ideas are horrible and awful and strange and not like, (laughs) yeah, I'm saying this through my character because I completely agree. It's really funny because we meet the motel lady and then we meet the motel. He could see the room was as shabby as the office, only its overall ambience was further enhanced by a stale human odor, a tinge of mildew, and the skittering of insect and arachnid legs. Musty shag carpeting covered the bedroom floor. The orange bedspread lay on the bed recalling the clerk's hair color. (laughs) A television of indeterminate age faced the bed, the screen dimly reflecting what little moonlight penetrated the gauzy drapes. And again, he doesn't even kill someone in this room. (laughs) And in fact, he leaves it immediately to go kill someone. The whole book seems really badly designed with, like, how much information is used. So you never know who you're supposed to care about. So you end up not caring about anyone because not only are they, like, not very sympathetic or interesting characters, but it's like someone's throwing you things and they're like, you have to catch this because, like, it's going to be important and you're going to have to use it. So you catch it. But then they keep on throwing things at you. And it's soon it's just like they're throwing pencil after pencil at you. So you just kind of resentfully stand there as you get hit with pencils because it's clear, like, none of these pencils actually fucking matter. <laughs> also, we mentioned this, but there is this one mention that Val thinks that the dinosaurs died because of UV light, which I, <laughs> I don't think that was supposed to be funny, but I thought it was really funny. Yeah, I do feel like the mention of, like, the ozone deteriorating was pretty funny. <laughs> He's like, ah, oh, shit, this is extra bad for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so after we spend 70 pages <laughs> with Val Romero, we move on to part two. Then we start getting, like, other characters who are related to his final innocent victim. But, like... I couldn't figure out who the protagonist was supposed to be, right? Yeah, no protagonist. I mean, I was assuming it was going to be Val because almost 100 pages with him, but... It's an ensemble cast. Our first new character that we're introduced to is Elaine. (laughs) (laughs) 
I saw that and I was like, oh, just another one-off character. And then I flipped through the rest of the book and I was like, fuck. Uh, we did not plan this. <laughs> no. no. I did not enjoy it. It was unenjoyable. <laughs> and it's her brother who gets killed. Is the the innocent. The introduction to Elaine is just pages and pages. Descriptions of what she looks like and... The narration w- was so weird because it was, like, both really focusing on how sexy she is, but then also, like, gross bodily functions. And I don't think we needed focus on either of those. She, like, wakes up and she's like, teehee, I fell asleep in my sexy bra and panties. And then, oh, I'm so stinky. I'm going to go pee. <laughs> and, like, I feel like Flanders was trying to, like, convey that we should like her. Because she's hot. He couldn't think of how to make the reader take her seriously, except describing her peeing. It's pretty obvious he doesn't know how to write women. He's just like, so because he just writes all of his women as these sex objects. And so he's writing her like that. And then he's like, oh, shit, but she needs to be a real person. What do real people do? Uh, they take a shit, I guess. And so that's what she does. Uh, he definitely does not write his women based on women, but what he would be like if he was a woman. <laughs> If I were a woman, I'd be a sexy woman. I, if I was a woman, I'd play with my boobs all the time. It'd be great. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, God. And she also does this thing. Val does this thing, too, where they're like, oh, I'm so much deeper than all the people around me, which I think is another thing Flanders personally believed about himself, that he was constantly <laughs> surrounded by sheeple and that he is the only <laughs> deep person. He's like, oh, none of these people can understand the deep thoughts I have. It's like, oh, I'm sure they could. <laughs> oh, yeah. Also, like going back to that whole being unsexy is a sin thing. There's this whole quote that Elaine has a body many would envy, no need of dye to hide gray, as many of her friends were already using. So it's like, oh God, all of her friends are become old and unsexy and terrible, but she's naturally hot, which is how you can tell she's a good person. I feel like you could see what Eric Flanders was imagining these characters, like in his head, how he wanted them to be. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's not the experience we had reading this. Fails to execute that. So the police show up at Elaine's. And Elaine is like a very wealthy Texan and she has a maid, Mona. And it's like so much wasted time in this. Like she spends a bunch of time making fun of her maid for being so dumb and silly to like not want to let the police inside. Felt like Mona's the only one here who knows that police are like the real vampires. <laughs> you never invite them inside because that's how they get you. <laughs> Oh, I forgot. Yeah, Val they, makes fun of the idea that you have to invite a vampire in. But if you thought Mona got away without, like, describing her bust or weird sex she's having, you're wrong. <laughs> We're just skipping over that because she's a character that doesn't matter. But he did stop to talk about her sex and yeah, her boobs. What? And a lot of, like, weird racial stuff that was really <laughs> foreshadowing for the rest of this book. <laughs> so... This is how Elaine finds out that her brother has been killed. And then she reminisces about how he was such a good kid. Except that one time that he got into a fight. Except that time he was forced into it. And he only fought the minimal amount required. (laughs) And Flanders does this type of description 
so often where he makes a big statement, like a sweeping generalization, but then he follows it up with the exception. And then he has to follow that up with the justification for the exception. And it's like, the point is completely lost. And like, just say what you wanted to say. We don't need like a whole page about like why he's, he's a good kid, but well, sometimes he did things that were bad, but it was okay that he did those bad things. Like, I didn't think of this before, but that's actually kind of how he treats the code, where it's like the thing that you see the most clearly is the exception. So with Val's code, the only times we see are either him like fulfilling it really badly or exceptions to it. We never actually see him fulfilling it in a normal way. Because he does this all the time, everything just seems like incoherent and false. Like we get these statements, but then the only thing we see in any detail is like the times when those statements are not happening. I feel like Eric Flanders is really trying to, you know have some moral complexity, some shades of gray here. <laughs> Things aren't just shades? black and white. <laughs> right. So even now that we have, like, this very hot character who we now know is the good guy, who's a victim of Val, there was so much justification with him, like, killing this innocent, where it was like, it was a mistake he made in a moment of weakness because he was starving and, like... And he feels really bad about it. So still not clear, like, who is supposed to be the protagonist? Who do we care about? Who are we following? Yeah, and I still think it could have been Val is like an unknowing sociopath. He's been alive a million years. He's gone crazy. But it it isn't. But why isn't it? (laughs) So could have been. He is supposed to be like mentally deteriorating or his code is deteriorating, but we never have any example. We don't know why or like what's going on. So it's hard to know how much to like take seriously. It's also hard to take his regret in this scene seriously where he's like, oh, I killed this innocent because he hasn't like eaten a couple of days. And also he just can't help himself because he hears a girl nearby getting raped and that just drives his bloodlust wild. He doesn't care at all that this girl's getting raped. He just like kills some other rando who just so happens to be Elaine's younger brother. So it's like hard to feel, even though he's like, oh, it's a mistake. It's hard to feel bad for him when he's like, oh, I don't care about people like getting raped or like all these other innocent people I've cared. Oh, but this young white man that I accidentally killed. Oh, that's so bad. I feel so bad about it. It just feels like really false or like he's like, he just feels like a 20th century bigot. Always. That's always his yeah. point of view. For someone who's supposedly a million years old, and, like, I didn't even go into this earlier, but they also talk about, like, dirt from his homeland, and it's like, what even is that when you're a million years old? And he talks about the old country, which would be the earth before people existed. <laughs> so there, you can't talk about peasants from the old country because you were alive before Yeah, that'd that. be, like, l- much late in his life. Yeah, it would be like your midlife crisis house and being like, oh, that's the old country. The funniest thing about the whole dirt thing in the beginning when he's talking about his cool car, done all kinds of modifications on, like he took the dirt from his homeland and he stitched it into a blanket so he could sleep in his car. I I just see him like with his Pinterest board for ideas for like... (laughs) It's like one of those weighted blankets, but it's full of dirt. I imagine it's like a binky... <laughs> like a little bear on it or something. And you have to imagine it's like really ragged and fucked up because who knows how old it is. Also, just the fact that his car is stuffed full of dirt yeah, <laughs> it like really takes down the cool tons. factor. So, I thought part two was gonna, like, since we had part one all about Val and no one else, I thought part two, we're gonna, like, 
meet Elaine and have an entire section for her. But it was like every other chapter, we're fully introduced to a new character who never comes back and mm-hmm. has no impact on the story whatsoever. Like, we have the morgue Dr. John Oliver, right. basically. The, the best example of, like, introducing and describing a character too much and then never using them. I actually liked this character description. It seemed genuinely creepy, but it's used on a character we see once. Also, he has, like, an assistant with enormous boobs, so there's, like, multiple yep. paragraphs right. on that. But it's like there's this genuinely <laughs> creepy description of this character who is hilariously named John Oliver. Yeah, but then he just vanishes it again, so it's like then the next characters who actually are important when they're introduced, it's like you don't care about what well, one of them's important, but you don't care about them because you're like, oh, another character I will never see again. He could die by a roadside in 12 hours for all I know, and it would not affect this book. The next two, like, semi-big characters, we have the FBI special agent Nancy Drew and Sega Dreamcast. And, like, ultimately they didn't matter at all, and they could have been cut entirely. Yeah. One of them um, semi-matters. Um, yeah, but not really. Like, he, if he had been cut completely, it wouldn't have changed really anything. I just feel like it was so underdeveloped. Because there's this whole, like, big government conspiracy. And yeah. there's all these, like, moments of, like, I'm calling in my password or whatever. And then it seems like he wanted to have the mystery, but he didn't actually have, like, yeah. what the, the actual he thing was in his, idea, in his uh, plans. No, I thought this was going to become a big thing. And it was going to be like, oh, the government's super involved. But it turns out it's just this one guy only... I personally suspect that it's like if the government suddenly became aware of like an immortal serial killer wandering around, even if it was not for benevolent reasons, you think they would be interested in that. And it wouldn't just be one guy. And I guess you could argue like, oh, maybe he's the only one who believes it. But it just seems like off and weird. And also they're like, oh, he's this up and comer. But then he's like doing a bunch of footwork. The whole thing makes no sense. Also, this part started the trend where every single time a white man appears and has more than four lines, someone else, usually another white man, will mention that he respects him. It's like... (laughs) Did you guys notice that? It always happens. It's like Flanders thinks that his presumably white male, like, reader could possibly identify with any of these men if they have more than four lines. And so he has to make sure their egos don't hurt. And he has to mention that no matter how stupid or foolish they are, like in this case, Drew is like, this guy who's been doing a shitty job, but he stood up to me and I respect him. (laughs) There is a weird thing with respect throughout the book that I think if someone took the time to analyze... They would die. (laughs) They would die. Um... There is some sort of psychosis that is revealed. Like, I think Eric Flanders tells on himself a little bit in, in that kind of stuff. So much all the time. Yeah. Like, we, this book really gives us a deep dive into Eric Flanders' mind. <laughs> I think he thought he was doing a psychological novel about other people, and he was just writing a deeply revealing novel about himself. Yeah, like, how shocked would you be if you if you found out that he was a serial killer? <laughs> I don't know if I would be, but I would not be shocked if I found out that he'd, like, fantasized about, like, killing an ex-girlfriend at yep. minimum. Certainly. <sighs> so, he's... But he's important because... Drew is, is yeah. mildly important. And as much as anyone else is important, Drew is important. And these two FBI guys, like, 
they have a lot of interaction with each other where they just kind of, I think this was supposed to be like fun, witty banter that would get us to like both of them. Oh my God. But it was so annoying and like the opposite of charming. It's like, supposed to be, yeah, like the two opposing cops go and solve yeah. a mystery, but one disappears after 10 pages. Also, their banter <laughs> is crap. The, the comedy falls flat throughout the book so hard that you just like grimace anytime. <laughs> like you have the exact opposite feeling of humor yeah. anytime it's happening. Banter is just so bad. Like no one has a fun human conversation <laughs> in this. It's like aliens are role playing as humans, but the aliens also have no sense of humor and they hate humans. <laughs> I don't know if I even but, wrote down any good examples, and they, it was like so long to like I've, really I've convey it. I've got a bunch uh, oh, for our, but we need to introduce our detective. Okay, and all right. A bunch for the detective because yeah. Drew, the guy. Okay, so actually, they're the two different, the two agents that we were just talking about. The guy who doesn't matter and Agent Drew. They actually come from like different agencies. Drew comes from like a secret mystery agency, and he's the one who actually knows Val. I'm not sure if he knows he's a vampire, but he knows he's somehow like this supernatural serial killer and he's after him. And he's also the one who tells Elaine like, oh, hey, you should contact. He pretends he's like actually sympathetic to her cause and not just using her, which whatever. I guess she doesn't figure that out. But he's like, hey, you should contact this one detective. He'll help you find this serial killer. No one has actually said a word out loud about Val being supernatural at this point in time. He doesn't say that to Elaine. Elaine thinks he's just like a random serial killer at this point. Uh, yeah, and then there's like some, there's like hinting that Drew is manipulating the P, both the private investigator and Elaine, but like, I don't know. That subplot never really, it never really was explained or it didn't, it didn't come mm. back. It didn't matter. It was just a plot device to get Elaine in contact with the PI, which wasn't really necessary because, like, on her own, she, she could have been yeah, frustrated right? with the local police, go to a higher PI yeah. since she's wealthy anyway. Like, And she's kind of shown to be pretty go-getter. Like, she stalks this policeman down into an apart, like a parking lot at one point, which is, like, probably the only fun part in the book. So it isn't, like, totally out of bounds that she would find a PI on her own. I always assumed he was manipulating them because he wants, like, an extra person to follow Val. But he seems pretty good at following Val on his own. So it just comes off as, you know, how they talk about how there's, like, Watsonian reasoning, which is, like, it's reasoning inside the book. And it's like, oh, this happens because of things inside the book. And then there's, like, Doylean reasoning, which is, like, the author is, like... I need a thing to happen. So that thing happens because the author needs that thing to happen. So much of this book just felt like Flanders was like, I need a thing to happen. Doesn't make sense with anything else in the book, but I'm making it happen because I'm God here. Then we're introduced to another big character who matters absolutely zero to the story. Dwayne. (laughs) Dwayne. Oh, yeah. And he comes back, like, in sections, like, every other chapter. We're, like, back to another Dwayne chapter. Yeah, I was sure he was, you know, main character number three or something. Yeah, I yeah. thought he was going to team up That's with That's how it's set up. No, we get alternating chapters with him until he's killed by a vampire. In a very anti-claim... Well, okay, that perhaps would not be the best term to use since she's sort of having sex with him at the time. <laughs> a very she, climactic She rapes way. him, which is, yeah, so that's great, like, wonderful. 
yeah, I thought it was going to be, I was actually looking, I was like, oh, you know what? Okay, this whole book has totally sucked so far, but this might be fun. It's like all the different people are chasing Val and they're using different me methods to chase him down and they're all going to converge at the end. And it's like, no, Dwayne dies at like 75% through. I was actually very excited for all the characters to meet and team up together. Yeah. That was going to be fun. Um, and we don't get it. Nope. It does not know. happen. This whole section is just, it's like sort of this, it's, I'm not sure if it's this whole city or like just a part of a city where it's sort of like an African American, it's like the African American population of the city lives and it is described in the most racist way possible without actually using like, yeah, right. so it, it's pretty bad. <laughs> Dwayne is black and because we're Eric Flanders, Eric Flanders has got to share all his feelings uh -huh. about everything about that. <laughs> And it just goes on and on and on. The reason Dwayne ends up chasing Val is you can tell Eric Flanders' feelings on this because Val basically, like, invades this space and is treated like a real badass for being a white person in this black space and not being afraid. And that shows how, like, cool and awesome he is. And it's extremely gross and horrible. And then while he's there... He kills Dwayne's mom because he mistakes her for a sex worker. And this is made even better because later Dwayne finds someone who I think is supposed to be Roma. It's like a stereotypical Roma fortune teller. And she tells him, this is referring to Dwayne's mom, that Val mistook her for something she wasn't. He shouldn't have killed her. Basically saying like, oh, Val thought your mom was a sex worker and killed her and it's bad. But if she had been a sex worker, it would have been a-okay because sex workers aren't people. So like... Well, he definitely believes it's a sin. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> yeah, that was very explicit. <laughs> yeah. This is how he feels about this. There wasn't too much description of that, the woman he went to, to like get help. Yeah, she's like Roma, but she practices or brujeria. So I was like... What's going yeah, on here? That's... I wasn't sure what... I don't think Eric Flanders really knew. He could have put some effort into that section. He's like, oh, like, just minority woman. I'm like, okay, great. Dwayne was the only one who like did any investigation. Like, That's true. He's like, huh, this this was a little weird. Go to someone who he thinks might know about it. Yeah. She tells him about vampires, and he's like, okay. And then he, like has the tools he needs to track Val and, like, knows what he's going after. Yeah, she gives him, like, a magic amulet to track Val with. And, uh, and it works. Yeah, it does. It's fully functional. Then he just gets, like, killed very quickly. Yeah. I will say, like every other offer we've read so far for this podcast, I don't understand why they stopped experiencing black culture after, like, the 70s. <laughs> Everyone talks and acts like they're in a 70s exploitation movie. Well, Flanders is real proud of the fact that he thinks he knows black slang. and But it's all from, like, the 70s. I would not describe him as actually knowing any slang right. whatsoever. And then we finally meet Neil. Yeah, we're back to Elaine. Neil is the closest to a main character this book gets. Is he? I feel like he is. But he's... He has the most oh motivation. God, I but guess. But we don't know that for like 100,000 yeah. yeah. years. <laughs> yeah, so it's like, who cares about Neil right. until, oh, he actually had motivation this whole time. Okay, sorry. We should probably introduce Neil. 
Neil's the PI that Elaine gets. He's the one who was recommended by Agent Drew. She meets him and right away, he just starts sexually harassing her. And this is supposed to be charming and fun banter. <laughs> yeah. I do not know why she never, she never even considers firing him. She never even is like, oh my God, I hate this man so much, but I can't fire him because like my brother's death. And believe me, any woman in this situation would be like, I wish I could fire this man. Because she can take it, but she can give it too. God, <laughs> all, their, all their banter. It's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be comedy gold. But it's just grim. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell Flanders, or I don't know, maybe he isn't, but it certainly reads like when a man sexually harasses women on the regular and thinks they're having fun banter, and it's like the women are just quietly enduring it and being like, ha trying to get through this situation <laughs> so you don't actually assault me. And it's like, this is what the inside of that man's mind looks oh like. He's like, this God. is what's happening. And you read it and you're like, oh, that's sure not what happened what is happening so neil is like a grumpy old man he's got a junky car he loves his junky car not in a fun charming way it's very annoying <laughs> there was in this section like a direct message from flanders <laughs> to the reader the quote was elaine sighed wearily that's really great mr neil but i think we have more important matters to talk about than your sleeping habits People are too hurried nowadays, Neil said, ignoring the edge in her voice. They don't take time to indulge in the amenities and get acquainted, don't you think? Elaine's side wearily could be a pretty good description <laughs> of my reaction during this entire book. But it's like he thinks he's like a French film where it's like, oh, it's not about the plot, it's about the atmosphere. But there is yeah. no atmosphere, it's just yeah. suffering. Do you guys want to do some dialogue? Some Neil and Lane dialogue? Go for it. All right. I'll be Neil this time. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> of course not, Miss Trent. I admire your good sense. I'd do the same thing in your place. Make inquiries, ask around, be sure of your man. After all, it's not just a matter of my wasting your money, but your time, which is almost as precious in a case like this. You sure do know how to kiss ass. Oh, I'm a great ass kisser, when I need to be. You find out lots of things kissing up to the right cheeks, lady. Don't call me lady. If we're going to be traveling together, call me Elaine. I didn't know we were going to be that intimate. It's not that. I think we want to avoid being conspicuous. And if I'm calling you Mr. Neil, and you're addressing me as Miss Trent, then it might arouse some suspicions. Shall I nibble your ear occasionally to make it more convincing? <laughs> You do, and I'll hand you a fistful of your teeth. Neil laughed. <laughs> Don't take things so seriously, Elaine. This is serious business, mister. What the hell do I call you anyhow? Jerry will do. Okay, Jerry, let's get back to business at hand. When do we leave? I'm having flashbacks <laughs> to working at retail. So I said that Neil sexually harasses her, and I think this is at its most blatant when at one point they're talking and she's like, oh, it's okay for me to share a hotel room with you, I guess, because like, I'm not scared of you, even though before she'd been like uncomfortable with it. And he's upset by this. Neil says, maybe I would just like to nourish the unlikely notion that I might retain even a smidgen of sex appeal or at least be threatening to a woman's virtue. If a man says that to me while I am stuck in a hotel with him, like, I, I am leaving that. That sounds like a rape 
threat to me. I'm sorry. Like, what the fuck? I would leave that room immediately. I don't... I'd be like, I am risking myself to the vampire at this point. He's never said anything that creepy to me. He's just murdered people. What's especially weird, actually, is not only is their banter extremely terrible, but at this point, Neil presents himself as being interested in this case because he has a friend, yes, yet another character, who is, like, kind of interested in this case, but he doesn't present himself as having any personal interest in it. And in fact, at one point, which actually isn't necessarily, like, illogical, but at one point, he basically says, like, Elaine, I know you want to murder this guy. And she's like, yeah... And he's like, well, I can't let you do that because that's against the law. But that makes no sense. When you find out about his backstory later, he would also want to murder this guy and he kind of can... So it's like, it almost feels like Flanders was writing this book and he is constantly forgetting his character's backstories. And so they just like, their actions depend on what he remembers at the moment and then information that totally contradicts it comes up later and it's like, who cares? Editing is for suckers. Yeah, they spend way too long like negotiating all the details of the contract talking about cars and then finally they get all the details worked out and they hit the trail we're 200 pages in and this is all that's happened is that way too much tony elaine's brother has been killed and she's hired a pi but then she has to stop and spend some time thinking about her hot bod (laughs) and then scold herself for thinking about her hot bod a literal mirror scene yeah so She shifted the phone to her other shoulder and tried to readjust the towel, which was slipping open with one hand. She almost dropped the phone, grabbed for it, and the towel came down completely. She stood naked in front of the bureau mirror and was surprised at how pink her flesh was. She hadn't noticed her body in some time, taking it for granted. And in this moment, it occurred to her it wasn't all that bad. But she shouldn't be thinking about things like that, she reminded herself. There would be time later, much later, to think about herself. It's like, if he was writing this today, like, Uh, Siri, remind me to think about my hot bod. (laughs) (laughs) It reminds me of that joke of, like, male writers writing women. And it's like, life is hard having the biggest breasts in high school. (laughs) 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 Is what all this feels like. Oh my gosh. Yeah. This is especially infamous way that bad writers like describe what their character looks like. Val almost has two moments that are kind of like this. They're not literal mirror scenes, but they're kind of similar to it. But it's like a sign of bad writing where you have a character look in a mirror and be like, I'm now going to describe what I look like to myself, despite the fact that I probably live in a world where there's a sufficient amount of mirrors. So this isn't new information to me. And yet we never get a mirror like... Why isn't Val not seeing himself in a mirror? Why don't we experience the vampire thing? I like the idea, though, of Val, like, getting, like, fucking binoculars or something and gazing into someone else's eyes so he can, like, see the (laughs) toy demon in detail and be like, oh, my hair looks good today. (laughs) But now, part three. Even more backstory about Val and his tortured past. So we get Val and Julia. This is the second horror book with a Julia villain. Oh, the, also had... the one with the big wiener. Yeah. Oh, the uh, pillowcase cement head. Yeah. <laughs> That's the one. Pillowcase cement head with a giant wiener. Named Julia. Named Julia. 
I hated yeah. this. <laughs> I'm probably going to scream about this for okay. five minutes, but let's, so let's get into we'll, it. We'll, we'll slowly lead into it then. Screaming. <laughs> uh, Val, at one point in his life, tried to live in society and for some reason fell in love with a normal lady. It was never clear to me why, other than, I guess she was hot. She has no personality. Yeah, and their relationship was incredibly bland. Yeah. He found someone that he could, like, settle down with and, like, nothing else in this relationship. He says he's in love with her, but they genuinely feel more like casual fuck buddies. Like, oh, I'll see you at night. I don't super care about your job. He's like a antique dealer he actually isn't like the total worst at blending in he's like i'm allergic to the sun that's although julia's kind of suspicious about that but being allergic to the sun is a real thing so that isn't actually a terrible lie so he loves her so much he has to tell her he's a vampire and the only way of proving to someone you're a vampire is to make them a vampire he, like, tells her once, and she's like, oh, ha, ha you're telling a joke. And instead of being like, no, there are multiple ways for me to prove that I'm a vampire because I can, like, read people's minds and control them and do all sorts of other gonzo things that are only mentioned once. He's like, I'm going to ruin your life and turn you into a vampire, which seems kind of extreme it's like telling someone that you have a car and they're like i don't believe you and you're like you'll believe me once i run you over with my car (laughs) and so then all of a sudden she has a personality she has wants and desires and that's he can't have that so he has to kill her (laughs) yeah (laughs) oh no you're a person no no that's not what i wanted Okay, so going back to that quote from earlier where he talks about, like, writers don't have enough of an education because they're not reading things. This whole subplot is one that's really popular in really shitty vampire novels. And it's, is the hero has a girlfriend, so the most pure, sweet, wonderful person, and then she gets bitten by a vampire, and now she's this horrible, evil sex bitch. She's this succubus. And they have to murder her. They morally have to murder her. And it's what her past self would want. They're not They're not murdering their girlfriend once she suddenly has, like, desires and isn't acting by society's rules. They're preserving the memory of their innocent girlfriend. Like, I mean, obviously, this is an idea that, like, we really love culturally. But what it ties back is to is Lucy Westerna in Dracula, who's kind of the original... Your innocent, pure vampire girl gets bitten by a vampire, and then suddenly she's all lustful and strange, and you have to murder her, usually with a phallic weapon, in, like, some horribly gruesome way. And in this case, it's even worse because it's a vampire doing it. So in this book, we sort of find out from here and going on, it becomes more and more clear. Male vampires are sexual, but they're also full of like pathos and it's like not their fault. Whereas female vampires are just these horny, mindless, like killing machines that must be destroyed. It was so like explicit that that's the main problem here. She just wants sex too much. Yeah, and And then they go out to feed together, and she's always got to, like, get the blood from the wiener. Yeah, she's always got to suck the blood out of the wiener, which I do think all vampire stories should have. (laughs) I mean, it's built into it. You're sucking blood. you got to have a vampire blowjob. But... 
And it specifically <laughs> says at one point that, oh, oh, female vampires do this. But later we do meet a female vampire, and it's mentioned that isn't something she does. So clearly it's like only pseudo-universal. And also, even before she's turned as a vampire, it's like at one point she's like defeats this guy in a business deal. So she's really horny. That, But that means that Val's bloodlust comes up. So it becomes like her fault. Like even before she's turned as a vampire, her lust is responsible for Val's like evil bloodlust and how that ruins their life. And it says once she becomes a vampire, it says Julia no longer existed. And then later on, it says her body was reforming itself, turning her into a more seductive and dangerous creature. So it's like this really horrible, toxic, idea that no matter how innocent or nice, like she isn't in this particular case because we know nothing about her, but it's like inside every single Madonna who might be your girlfriend, all she needs is a vampire bite and then the brainless whore inside is going to be revealed and all your sexist ideas were true all along. And then he kills her because it is specifically says that she no longer fills his emotional needs. It's not even like he's like, oh, this is morally wrong. He's like, I don't want you as my girlfriend anymore. So he murders her and I hate Val and Eric Flanders so fucking much I was so angry after this part oh my god and not to give things away but this pattern gets repeated with that other female vampire I mentioned it's the exact same thing I don't even know if it's the lust thing I think Eric Flanders is telling on himself a little bit in women attaining power and independence. Because before she gets turned into the vampire, she becomes a powerful businesswoman and starts doing business deals and then like demanding sex that's like too much for Val. And this is when he starts to dislike her. And then once she becomes a vampire, then she's as powerful as him. He's always more powerful than everyone. But then she's equal to him as a vampire. And she starts like, you know, kind of having sex with other men, but killing them. But either way, as soon as she is equal to him, then he has to kill her. And she isn't even totally equal to him. She she and the other female vampire are both turned by Val and they both like worship Val for making them into right. vampires. They're like, we love this so much. Our lives are so much better now. And he's like, I hate this. Nor had she known that having created her, he could also destroy her. Not being able to bring her back to the way she had been, Val had no alternative. He did not love the new Julia. And that's why he kills her because she's not her own person. She's just his creation. And she's like powerful. But even, the, even though she worships him, it's like, that's bad. That's bad. And I must kill her now. This whole section, I like don't even want to make this comparison because this is like such absolute garbage. It's very enraging. It did make me think about my favorite vampire story, which is... Thirst. Thirst is the best version of this story. Yeah, where it's kind of like an exploration of like a really bad relationship that is like dysfunctional and like there's problems and then adding superpowers and like immortality to that situation doesn't improve anything. But right. there's a lot going on there also, but... Thirst knows about the... Like, it's on purpose, the power dynamic and all, like, the competition between a boyfriend and girlfriend in that story. Not to spoil the end of Thirst, but it's not <laughs> that he recognizes his girlfriend is evil. He sees her and recognizes that he is evil. So he has to kill all the vampires. Uh, Good movie. We're, like, 300 pages into the book now. How long was this book again? It was almost 400, I think. Yeah, I had the number memorized when I was reading it. Because I kept <laughs> <laughs> How much longer? 
Yeah, uh, 381. It's 300 pages in, there's a part where Val, he manipulates time and space, which is a thing he can do. Never mentioned before. And never mentioned after, but he just does that. Then back to the, the story after this flashback with Julia, everyone is getting telepathic messages. Val is getting messages from someone telling him he needs to go to the vampire sanctuary of Dracula's. Was it Dracula's or Dracos? But yeah, you're right. It's basically Dracula's. That's what it is. Which brings up the question, does Dracula exist? Maybe they've never had any vampire literature in this world and Dracula's real. And so that's why no one thinks of vampires. Not clear. And Jerry has been getting telepathic messages from his daughter. That's Neil. His first name is Jerry. And it turns out that she she was turned by Val years ago, which is the thing I was talking about where it makes no sense because you'd think that like Neil would be extremely down to murder the shit out of Val after killing his daughter. Yeah, she was like a random victim that Val didn't finish off. So I was like, why? I feel, it felt weird that there was so much developing Julia as a character and it wasn't like her coming back. Like he didn't actually kill her. Like someone that we actually have been introduced to or care about in some way. And it's like, no, some other random lady who Val turned by mistake. Okay. You could have just merged those two characters if you wanted Neil to still be involved with it. Neil could have been the dad character of Julia who's in there. Who appears, but like... Also, it would make sense because Neil... There's this very weird thing in this where no one in this book ever needs money except for Dwayne, like the one black character. (laughs) None of the white characters... In fact, Neil specifically says, like, you don't need to pay me. I can get money anytime. And I'm like, can you tell me what your secret is? Because... (laughs) not the traditional experience for most people so it would actually make sense because it's like oh julia's dad was super rich so then you could be like oh instead of just being some weird class thing going on here neil actually is rich it's just he gave up that life after his daughter was brutally murdered and he saw it she starts appearing as a mysterious sexy lady vampire think she's the vampire that kills Dwayne, but we don't know who she is at that point um and then she confronts Drew, who's been following along in his car or whatever. Agent Drew on the case. And he disables her by putting his fist into her mouth. He, like, <laughs> punches her in the open mouth and blocks off her air yeah. passage. So it's like, oh, she can't bite him because his hand his- is in her throat. <laughs> Except his and arm then, is in her mouth. And so then she passes out. This must be like some sort of survival technique Eric Flanders knows. They really <laughs> had to put in the book. Like, this is a weird thing I know. <laughs> he specifically mentions that he's used it on a dog before, but it, this is like one of those things where I was like, oh, it's not going to work because she's a vampire. Maybe she doesn't need to breathe, but vampires do need to breathe. There's very little coherence to what vampires do or do not. So it works. Just punch a vampire in the mouth. The part of this encounter that was so bizarre is that Drew's entire motivation is to capture a vampire. Right. He captures a vampire, but he's like, oh man, I really have to leave this vampire here because I don't have time to like take her back to the lab or whatever because I'm hunting this other vampire. 
it's never explained, like, why he needs Val instead. Like, they could have removed that encounter. She didn't need to confront him. Well, also, because she's supposedly leading all these people to Val. That's her purpose. Why is she also killing them? She was leading them to Wait, Val she? so that Val oh, could yeah. kill them. But, but then yeah. she also killed them. Yeah, she, like, wants Val to kill her dad, but it's never explained why Val needs to... Yeah, her... No one's motivations make any (laughs) sense, but hers were especially, like... Yeah. What's her name again? I can't... Rachel. Rachel, thank you. Oh, my God. These names. Uh, Okay, then our other character who's been coming back is Joe Sundance, the little man. (laughs) For most of the book, he doesn't have a name. He's just the little man. But he's been there since the beginning. Every once in a while, he, he peeks into a chapter. Yeah, He'll be, like, there while Val's there, but Val gets away, like, just in time. He's following Val, but we don't know anything else about him. And actually, Rachel is kind of mentioned as, like, shadowing him a little. Right. But yeah, like, every time he pops up, I'm like, what is this weird little man? <laughs> Why do we care about this little man? Um, But apparently he's really good at doing sex. And yes. It's- it is specifically not just sex. It is ancient Indian magic sex. He's Native American, if you couldn't figure out from his last name, because Joe Flanders is a real artist. And uh... Well, in, in the universe, in the Flanders verse, <laughs> sex is the most powerful thing. So if you want to make a powerful character, you got to make him have an ancient magical sex power. Yeah, and we find out that he learned hunting vampires from his grandfather. There's also the line, The women were the most dangerous because they were beautiful and would use their sex as part of the evil magic they used to take men, suck their blood, and rob them of their souls. Which really feels like when you find out your grandfather's an MRA and you can't, but there's like nothing you can say about it. (laughs) Oh, God. And, And like with... Finding out who Joe Sundance is, that's when we finally find out Neil's backstory. Yeah, so Neil had a daughter who was bitten by Val. Joe was her boyfriend. What? No. Oh. Joe and Neil were best friends. Wait, why did I think Joe Sundance was dating his daughter? I have no idea. I don't know, maybe because... She was making out with a different guy in the car. Oh, okay. I thought he was like asking for her hand in marriage or something. No. Did I imagine that? You wait, did that? Right. Wait, what? Okay. <laughs> so, just kidding. Joe's an expert <laughs> vampire hunter from his old Indian days. Best friends with Neil. Best friends with Neil. <laughs> and never uh, explained why. So, yeah. Rachel gets turned into a vampire, and Joe's like, hey, I'll, I'll take care of this for you. Like, you don't have to know. How does it deal with it? But Neil can't handle it. Well, he says he's actually going to turn her back because he's like, oh, you know what? If we kill the vampire who turned her and do a weird ritual, then like she'll actually be turned back into a normal person because she hasn't drunk any blood yet. So Joe goes out and kills someone who turns out just to be this total random. He's like, a just random, just cool a guy. random guy on the street. So he just murders <laughs> like this person who's totally uninvolved. So Neil walks in to Joe massaging Rachel's naked body with blood. So it's like even 
when the point of view is someone's dad, that woman is still going to be sexualized in some horrifying way. And then Joe's like, oh, oh, fuck, it didn't work. I didn't kill the right person. The only thing we can do is put her out of her misery. We have to track her down and kill her to free her soul. Yeah, he's like the vampire expert. He's like, yeah, this is going to work. But he gets the wrong guy and is like, oh, now we can't even do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so now we have no choice but to kill this horrible succubus. So it's like, great, we don't just get that once, we get it twice. This is like 300 pages in. He finally tells Elaine vampires are real. She never suspects anything up until this point in time, even though it's like a serial killer. Whatever, we've already gone over this. (laughs) It's bad. I do want to say... This isn't a Sean's Better Book section, but that's the inkling of a good story here. Both a father whose daughter becomes a vampire and then he has to go kill her. And I think I actually like the Native American involved with vampires too. There's that whole scene where he can't be accepted by his ancestors because he thought he got bitten and has become one. Those are the those are interesting, and you could tell an interesting story with those. Yeah, if Eric Flanders had like done any research. I met a non-white person ever in his life. I don't, I think that would be interesting to read from a Native American author. I think that would be really interesting. I'm not sure I would want Eric Flanders or... Sure. I just think they're they're interesting stories. No, no, no. I, no, I get what you mean. That Those do yeah. sound like much better stories than this one, which I don't think I could even summarize the plot no in plot. a sentence. A vampire is sad and drives around while various people try to kill him. There. Well, I am of the opinion that what he really wanted and had was all these little vignettes of a vampire killing someone. Like all those little stories of like, oh, he go kill he goes and kills the lesbians or he kills the the blackface people. <laughs> yeah. <that's laughs> weird. And, and I think that's what he actually had. And then he's like, How am I gonna string these all together? Yeah. And that's how this book happened. That was okay. We didn't mention this, but there's this part earlier where he goes and kills five different people, and it's presented in list format. And I think yeah. that's and it's the people he kills are. This is his terminology. This is not me saying this, but the people he kills are the fat lady, the couple in blackface, a mercy killing, the cop, the dykes, the preacher, the milk lady, an old bitch. And the one person he saves is the innocent. And (laughs) this was not, this is, it's funny that you say that because I think I would have hated that book even more because I think this was the most unpleasant. It was miserable. I just think that's what he had before he sat down. Probably. Oh my God. You're probably right. And this whole section was so bad. There's two things in particular, though, that stood out to me. Mimi already talked about an old bitch, which is where he like kills this old woman who's arguing with her husband. And the husband's like, I'm delighted to see my wife being murdered. And it's like, yeah, you definitely killed the right spouse here. There is the dykes, which is he he kills two women who are having sex with each other. So like two women who are attracted to other women. But like, obviously, we don't know anything more about them. And it's he commits a hate crime. It's I think that's like the most homophobic slash lesbophobic thing I've read in a while. It was really deeply unpleasant and to that, read. Yeah, that he, section, he like, there's so much commentary directly from the mind of Eric Flanders in that section. Like, it 
Yeah. He makes a lot of comments that are like, oh, like straight guy, like deconstructs lesbianism, like right. comments in like a really unpleasant way. And he pretty horribly murders them and rapes them. And it's pretty clearly supposed to be a funny, sexy scene. Right. I almost got vibes of like Man Bites Dog or something where it's supposed to be horrifying to us because Val thought it was funny. But then I, I was like, oh, wait, no, I'm not reading that book. I'm reading Eric Flanders. Yeah. It's horrifying to us because Eric Flanders finds it funny. Yeah. No, it's like the way that he's like quipping and stuff. I do genuinely supposed to think like the reader's supposed to be like, this is such a great scene. I always wanted to put down those horrible lesbians and put them in their place and rape them. And it's right. it's really unpleasant to read as anyone who doesn't like who isn't like doesn't it's unpleasant to read as anyone. <laughs> Well, it, like, yeah, anyone who doesn't, like, ragingly hate women or, like, queer women or anything like that. Okay, that scene was also interesting to me for another reason, which is there's a scene right before it, which is a mercy killing, which was extremely funny to me because this whole book, Biting Someone as a Vampire, is pretty clearly presented as, like, a sexual act. I don't think I'm wrong in that. And Val very noticeably never bites a man unless it's a couple and he's biting the woman and then the man and it's like he's just the second part of the meal or when he's eating with julia other than that the only times he ever bites a man alone is when he kills elaine's younger brother and it's very strongly emphasized how out of control he is and also elaine's brother is really treated as feminized like she's looking at his hands at one point and she says it's like he's a slender young man and it she says she's like julia I'm sorry, I'm like... You don't oh. want to be Elaine. You <laughs> I don't, don't want it to be Elaine. I don't want it to be Elaine. And Elaine looks at her brother's hands and she says, His fingers were so graceful, more like a woman's than a boy's. So it's like that murder, it happens to a boy, but it's like the book really wants to make it like he's almost like this woman somehow. And then he kills this guy and it's like, oh, this guy who's had this miserable life and women have treated him badly and now he's just waiting to die. And it describes the way that Val bites him as quickly, without passion. Which is like the vampire version of no homo. I'm just biting this guy to put him out of his misery. And I think that it's like vampire novels do really have this strong history of queer themes. And it feels like Flanders is aware of that. And he like almost wants to play with that. But he is terrified of having Val, who he identifies with, being seen as queer. So it's like the whole book, it's like there are so many moments where it just feels like he's being like, no homo, not gay, don't worry. There was a woman in the room, so it's all super hetero. It's just like that's how the whole thing came off. And so that moment was really funny to me. (laughs) Quickly, without passion. Okay, so then... We get to our final confrontation. There's a bit of a car chase. Val drives off a cliff. He runs away and jumps onto a train. Kills a hobo. Yeah, that made no sense because it's like the hobo is like a genuinely a nice person to him. But then he's like later like, oh, it's okay. I killed this hobo because he's homeless and his personality is completely disintegrated. Despite the fact we've seen this homeless guy like actually being like nice and generous to him. So it's like... Okay, like, you just hate yeah. homeless people. Also, he has a chance to kill Neil and Elaine. It's like, this is how another part where his code makes no sense and it's just used as a plot furtherance. But he's like, oh, I can't kill them because they are blameless and sinless. Despite the fact he's 
killed other people uh-huh. like them a ton. So he just doesn't kill them because that would be unfortunate to the plot. So he runs away onto the train and kills a homeless man instead. Then Elaine and Neil somehow catch up to him, even though like he jumps onto a train and goes. And they like somehow get back to their motel, buy a new car. They're doing all this stuff, <laughs> but somehow they catch up to the train. Maybe it's uh, a really slow freight train. Drew shows up. Rachel shows up. Elaine and Neil go to confront him, and they have no plan for confronting him. Neil has known this entire fucking time that he's a vampire, and they just go, and he knows that guns don't work, but he gives Elaine a gun, and they don't get to confront Val, and they're only saved because, like, a million other people show up. They argue, they have their final monologues, and then... It's played like Val is actually not the bad guy, but Rachel is the bad guy, and Rachel is the one that they actually should be killing. Like, Neil actually has this, like, one moment where he's like, killing Val seems, like, almost wrong somehow, and you're like, he, what? They're both gentlemen. (laughs) Yes. Oh, God. Val dies. Well, Joe Sundance shows up. Oh, he shows up, too. Everybody's there. And he has the plan where he, you know, he stabs Rachel with the stake. That she can't pull out because it's barbed, and then he, he he lights Val on fire, and he's blindfolded the whole time, <laughs> yeah. so he can't be hypnotized. <laughs> it's funny because like Neil and Elaine are like, "We got our gods. What we're we gonna do? We're scared." They're like talking to him, and then so, like Joe's like, bruh, 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 bruh. <laughs> he, he like, he's he, like walks in, like kind of does it all. He drives up with his new like yeah, his new sexy girlfriend. Oh my god! Another woman drawn in by his sex magic. Okay, so Val is dead. And then we have the psychedelic part. His soul is at peace. He's about to see God. He's like traveling with these other souls. And there's the funniest line, speaking of respect, the other souls recognized his great age and respected it. Instead of being (laughs) like, this guy has committed a million murders. He just sucks. We hate him. They're like, no, we respect him. And he's finding peace. It turns out somehow they didn't fully kill Rachel for some reason. Well, we learned just how powerful vampires are. Even if you've, like, stabbed them with the stake, they can still survive for a really long time. She manages to pull it out, and then she revives Val with a drop of her blood in his ashes. Yeah. (laughs) Which brings him back. And she, like, just adores him so much that she wants him to be alive, despite the fact they were, like, actually fighting before he died. But... Surprise! Now Val's back to life and Rachel's dead instead. Also, Drew's alive. Yeah, twist, Drew's a vampire. Yeah. Well, he's become a vampire now. And Val is alive again. And he's unhappy about it, but it's like, he knows what to do. Just set himself on fire again. He can't kill himself because of his survival instinct. But that's (sighs) another really shitty thing that's like thrown in earlier and it's like oh he doesn't really like being alive but he has this incredibly strong survival instinct (laughs) that he can't overcome that's like one more thing that is just thrown in there to like make the plot happen even though it makes no sense you yeah, can't, he just had to, it was just a massive plot hole they had to fill somehow. People have, like, really strong impulses, and they can be, like, drawn by them in strange and complicated ways. I understand that. But none of his characters are ever complicated enough where it feels like those impulses are real, and it just becomes clear that he's just slapped this impulse on here so Val can't kill himself, and it's like, ooh, until next time, kids, Val is still out there and alive, when... It would actually make much, much more sense for Val's character to be like, yeah, now I'm just going to burn myself to death. But no, instead, the end. Fuck this book. (laughs) The end. 
Uh, this book is not a horror book, or at least in the traditional sense. You are quite <laughs> horrified by the author. Um, but this book is very long. I feel like horror in the written sense, like traditionally, if you're not like the best writer or whatever, you make horror by spending a lot of time with your characters, either making them really likable or making them realistic, like recognizable. You really understand the character and how they think. And then you do some terrible things to them. And then the reader feels bad or like, oh, something might happen. That's scary. And this has none of that. In fact, the only character we get to know at all is Val, who's... Insufferable. He's horrible. He's horrible. But also, are we supposed to be scared of him dying? Are we supposed to sympathize with him? Are we supposed to think he's cool? We're supposed to respect him. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't even think, like... Yeah, it's, like, unclear how we're supposed to feel about him. Like, are we supposed to see him as the villain or the good guy? And it's not, like, in a, like, ooh, an ambiguous way. It's, like, in a poorly written way. And, yeah, every time it starts to lean in one direction... Flanders, like, backpedals and goes the other way. And you get the feeling he feels a very specific way, but he's not only very poor at conveying it, but he has, like, really horrible tastes. So you never feel the same way that he does about this character. This compared to the other books we've read for our horror specials, Hobgoblin in the Bog. So Hobgoblin spent all that time explaining, like, the board game and our main character's feelings and how he's, like, isolated and this castle and his mom. And then when scary stuff starts happening, you're like, oh, no, they might get hurt. And the bog, like, you really get to know the family. You get to know the dog (laughs) that he leaves outside. Horribly eaten. And then that's Stephen King's whole thing. He writes 10,000-page books where, like, 90% of them is just the weather (laughs) in people's lives in this it's like there's a lot of information but it's useful useless information and you never care about anyone so there's never any tension i got a tension headache from this but that was about (laughs) the closest there was to ever any tension because you're like i don't give a shit if all of these people fall into like a pit full of fire no one was likable right even when it was clear eric flanders wanted them to be likable they were not Oh, there was the one sex worker who murdered the rapist. She was likable. <laughs> and then she's immediately killed. So that's it. Yeah, no, he thinks these are all really fun, interesting, or like deep characters that we're supposed to sympathize in one way or another. But um, I did not. Very strongly, I think the way he makes a character is he puts himself in their shoes. <laughs> well, if I was this person, this is what I'd do. And that's why all the characters are like this, because they're all Eric Flanders. And that's why yeah. all the characters oh are so God. sex-based. <sighs> it's like, well. Well, if I was a woman, I would be sexy. I'd be getting all the D. Um, it makes so much sense. But I also want to compare this to Salem's Lot, that uh-huh. massive Stephen King yeah. vampire story. And it's not even one of Stephen King's best. But Stephen King had the idea of what if there was a vampire in America? That's the whole point of the book. So it's all about like a small American town and all the people in it, them trying to deal with a vampire and how unprepared shitty americans are for vampires and i think that's eric flanders wanted to tell an american vampire story that's why he's always driving across america Mm. and experiencing these american people and it's just such an utter failure of having a vampire or having an america (laughs) it doesn't even like take really i guess car culture but like we said before (laughs) fucking loves cars 
Like another thing that I thought was kind of funny was I think he associates vampires with the medieval era. So he actually tried to associate Val with the medieval era, although as a million year old being, there would be no particular reason for him to be associated. He says the medieval era was great for vampires, which like I won't like really geek out on medieval history, but that doesn't particularly make sense. And there's also this one line, Val has lips like a stereotypical debauchee as depicted in medieval literature, but that, okay. The medieval era was was a period of 1,000 years and it covered over a continent. So obviously I have not read even most medieval literature. I am only a mere aficionado of medieval <laughs> literature, but never in any medieval literature have I ever heard a debauchee described as having like full lips. That doesn't even sound like the way you would describe something in medieval literature. So it's like he gets this idea like, oh, I want to do an American vampire story. Oh, I want to associate this vampire with the medieval era. But it doesn't seem like he's familiar with any of these things, despite the fact that he clearly obviously lived in the Midwest. So these (laughs) stories just end up being like these bizarre, hollow like references. And you're like, I guess this is different than if it happened like somewhere else. Should have just done a Midwest vampire as 30 years old. Getting... (laughs) Hunted by a dad and an, an old Native American. Oh been my great. God. That would have been actually more interesting than this because I feel like there are interesting psychological things you could do with that. And this, he sure thought he was doing a lot of interesting psychological things, but um, no, he was not. Well, so, it brings up the anatomy, I think. Yeah, I wanted to talk about some of the bad anatomy. And it was interesting because there was plenty of bad women's anatomy, which is not that uncommon. But there was so much bad men's anatomy, too. The first quote that really stood out was like, His testicles were constantly bloated with unspent semen. <laughs> I, I'm not... I'm not a testicle expert. <laughs> you aren't? But I don't you think... You aren't? I don't think that's how testicles work. No, the sperm is reproduced on a pretty regular basis. <laughs> also, the next quote that I thought was also funny was, this is still talking about Val, the gravid condition of his own testicles. Gravid means pregnant. Val's testicles have unborn fetuses in them like fully developed somehow an ovum got in there so that also seems i am also not a testicle expert but that also seemed incorrect to me (laughs) or the orgasm that seemed about to rip out his prostate it was so intense oh god that sounds so awful to me that oh probably get that checked out And also, going back to Julia sucking dick as she sucks blood, it's like Val and she do this to a guy. Val is also sucking this guy's blood. She is literally sucking blood from this guy's dick, and he gets hard. Like, that... (laughs) A dick gets hard because there is blood in it. If you are sucking the blood out, is it going to be soft? I don't know. Like, these things seem very obvious, but I don't know. Uh, But I do congratulate Eric Flanders because I feel like vampire blowjobs were missing in all vampire (laughs) stories. And I feel like they really belong in every vampire story. It's just built into the... Just the beast. Now all vampires need to do that. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't understand why Val doesn't also do blowjobs. <laughs> just the most efficient way to get blood, really. Yeah, just... <laughs> <laughs> 
Maybe you should write, like, Flanders. Well, I guess he's dead, but just really make that suggestion. I will write the best vampire erotica. It'll be all about wieners (laughs) bloated with blood. Cut them off and make blood hot dogs. But the vampires must also have testicles constantly bloated with unspent sperm that are gravid. Right. So then this really horrifying description of women's anatomy... I think this was Julia saying this. Every time I feed, I feel the walls of my womb constricting, like I was nursing, though I've never been pregnant. It's like I'm one big G-spot inside, and it's incredible. All of that's wrong. (laughs) Every part of it's wrong. Do you think Eric Flanders' wife ever read this and just like... I imagine she's a very sad lady. (laughs) Not or, or... A very depraved and happy lady. <laughs> Do they have sex education in Indiana? That's really what this book is uh, a warning sign of, is we need more sex education in our schools. <laughs> well, let me see. He was born in 47, so he would have been going to high school in the 60, uh, 60s. Yeah, the 60s. I think they were having sex education in California then, but maybe not Indiana. Or maybe he slept through it. That's also an option. Someone also, when that when one girl is getting raped at one point in time, it is described as pounding at her hymen. <laughs> Not how that works. I won't go into it anymore. I'm just going to say it's inaccurate. <sighs> Eric Flanders' quote, too many writers trying to write with too shallow an education. He had too shallow a sex education. <laughs> uh, well, who do you think this book is for? I think if you read the first chapter and thought it sounded funny or cool, it's for you. I think you know right from the beginning what you're getting into. <laughs> the problem is we just kept going. The first 20 pages, so really get some philosophy. Um, I would say a 20th century bigot, just like Val. I feel like this book is for Eric Flanders. I really write for myself. I don't care what the critics yeah! say. <laughs> <laughs> should have just kept it for himself. (laughs) Reading this feels like being the unfortunate therapist who is listening to Flanders work through his many issues and you're just trapped there with his extremely bizarre Mm. fantasies and philosophical ramblings. Writing is my therapy. Yeah. It's like those two things smashed together and we all need some sort of horrible blood pact that we would read this, so we went through with it. <laughs> the blood pact. <laughs> That's what it felt like. I was, like, reading this, and I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> what have I promised myself into? <laughs> This month, Sean and I also read good horror stories. Yeah, so we're not the experts of horror that we are of fantasy and sci-fi. So in our continuing journey to understand written horror stories, we've read some supposedly good horror. I read a book called Fledgling by Octavia Butler, which is also a vampire story. 
Well, hopefully you didn't mix the two up while you were reading both of them. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully you were able to tell the difference between the two of them so they don't have too much crossover. It was quite jarring going back and forth between the two. (laughs) But it was also interesting to see, like, similar themes coming up and just being done completely differently. Either handled in a skillful way or the absolute trash that Flanders was writing. (laughs) Um... Fledgling starts with a trope we sometimes make fun of. Someone wakes up with amnesia. Of course. Basically, our main character is a young female vampire who has completely lost her memory. She's been in some kind of traumatic accident and is trying to figure out what it means to be a vampire. And so we're exploring that as she regains memories And so the trope is actually used the way, like, it's meant to be used, I think. One of her first victims, she bites. And in this story, it feels really good to be bitten by a vampire. It's like, oh, it kind of hurts at first. And it's like, oh, it's really good. Like, uh, I feel like the the whole story was very literal also. Or, like, it was an actual literal story where vampires are just slightly different species and there's that same exploration of which lore is accurate and which is not and so things like religious symbols don't have any effect because the power from those is from vampires being an evil being and in this world they're just like a different type of species and they actually live in symbiosis with human beings i've read five different octavia butler stories and they all involve like yeah, symbiosis symbiosis and like genetic manipulation and stuff like that and this one has a ton of that too so vampires have like kind of colonies where they live with their human victims which kind of tend to become part of their family where they feed but like a little bit so that they're able to like keep their family there and then their venom has something in it that's like addictive to humans so the humans can't live without the vampire and they like become bonded the vampire saliva also like stimulates blood production so if like the vampire leaves them or they're separated the human being will like have medical problems because their body just keeps producing blood but anyway our main character doesn't know any of this she's actually a half human half vampire hybrid blade and she's (laughs) she's also half black so it turns out like her vampire colony had been experimenting with genetics to try to like create vampires that can survive better in the sun so she was one of those experiments it's like she's also kind of discovering like what does it mean to be black now that her entire history has been wiped out but then it's mostly i think explored kind of in parallel about like what does it mean to be half vampire and it's like she's with this new human partner that she's kind of paired up with and trying to read like human stories about vampire history and it's all like totally wrong but it's like based on things and so and then she ends up locating a separate colony that was related to her um because colonies are separated also by vampire gender and like female vampires are separate they're separate colonies and male vampires have their own colonies but she finds her father and doesn't really remember him but he's like finally able to like you know tell her about being a vampire and there's like all these like medical things that she doesn't know about that she needs to know to survive and then their entire family 
is also wiped out, like mass murdered. And so it kind of becomes like a bit of a murder mystery. And they're like trying to escape from these people who are hunting them. They don't know what's going on. They're just investigating and from there it kind of turns from like murder investigation and like fleeing from these killers to like like a court drama like a trial (laughs) drama that's what i always want (laughs) (laughs) they find another established vampire colony that like one of the other survivors from this last incident like vaguely remembers so then they finally get like all this deep vampire culture and they like call a big gathering of all the old families and they think they know who did it and yeah there's like a big vampire trial and she's got to like represent herself oh in, in this vampire court <laughs> and it basically comes down to like racism and that this family like felt that it was wrong for these vampires to be experimenting with genetics and like so racism and bigotry is like really explored in this trial scene the end this sounds like the better book version of what Quite we read. A <laughs> <laughs> yeah so pretty interesting story mm. sounds uh, interesting no it sounds really good do you like it yeah i would recommend it certainly better sure. than night blood <laughs> that's a pretty low bar but <laughs> It's it's better than absolute trash. You will not feel like stabbing yourself in the leg as you read this book. Oh, there were also vampire sex moves. Like not quite blow a jobs? not quite a blowjob. <laughs> it seems like the ultimate vampire sex move. No, but she started feeding off of someone's inner thigh and that was really good. <laughs> She should have just gone straight for the junk. Well, I guess there's, like, some big arteries down there. Actually, that would be pretty dangerous. One of your major arteries is there, and if it gets nicked, you can die pretty fast. Yeah, but it feels so good. All that that (laughs) vampire venom. (laughs) Okay, well, I read The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You all know it. (laughs) We all watched The Wishbone. Yep. (laughs) Wishbone! Um, I guess... I was kind of hesitant to read this because I'm dumb. And, like, I've only seen all the reimaginings or, like, experienced, like, the way it's seeped into modern culture. So I was like, well, what's scary about turning into this little guy? Because it's always, like, it's always so, like, he's a monster. Look out. He's going to get you. But obviously, as most intelligent people know, it's about addiction. And the horror is Dr. Jekyll's your friend. And he's addicted to this thing. Mm. And you don't want him to do it. Right. I'm sure everyone else knew this. I'm stupid. Um, Oh, I have a quote. Strange as my circumstances were, the terms of this debate are as old and commonplace as man. Much the same inducements and alarms cast the die for any tempted and trembling sinner. And it fell out within me as it falls with so vast a majority of my fellows that I chose the better part and was found wanting in the strength to keep it. And that's that's what the book is. <laughs> but it's great. It isn't scary, but it is horrifying, uh, your friend falling into deep addiction. But it also has that Halloween vibe mm. of, like, mm. misty London streets at night and cobblestones and dark alleyways and stuff. This collection had some other short stories. There was The Body Snatcher, which was pretty good, about some people who steal bodies from graveyards. There was Markheim, which was not very good. 
It's about a killer being confronted by the devil and the bottle imp, which is like a retelling of the monkey's paw. <laughs> Did you have a favorite from the collection? Oh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde's. <laughs> That's the main attraction. Yeah, it's very good. Uh, I guess the difference is because the only other thing, I read Treasure Island. And Treasure Island was written for children. And Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is written for adults. I wouldn't say it's challenging, but it's not for kids. It's so, darker. I did read Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You guys have both read it, right? Well, I read it a really long time yeah. ago. Well, feel free to interject. I read it as a child. And my memory of it is that all the action happens at the beginning. And then there's so many pages where you're just reading the letters about, here, let me tell you what really happened. Yeah, the last two chapters and are letters. I hated that structure. <laughs> and that's about all I remember. Um, I was going to say, I actually was going to ask this question. It's been so long since I've read it. Am I remembering it correctly when it's like Dr. Jekyll actually develops the serum on purpose because he wants to be able to do these things and like discount all responsibility for yeah. them? Yeah, that is, I've never seen an adaptation do that. And that is the most interesting part to me that he specifically is like, I want to do bad things, but I want to be able to like basically say like, it's not my fault. And that's the whole reason I developed this. That's like such an interesting concept to me and it feels uh sort of uh <laughs> like one that's echoed a lot right now but so that is okay good yeah <laughs> it's 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 straight up drug addiction or alcoholism it's great it's good and it's like 80 pages no reason not to read it for halloween i'm reading a horror book too right now so i won't go into it too much because i'm obviously like only halfway through but i'm reading let the right one in which is a swedish vampire story which is about a thousand times better than this one a lot of it's really atmospheric because it's taking place in sweden in the winter time and you probably know this but in case you don't sweden in winter is a very grim and cold place. The snow basically goes up 10 feet. You get at most like an hour or two of sunlight and you're probably working or in school during that period of time. So it's basically dark the entire time. And when there is light out, it's like the sky is gray and the snow is gray and they are the same color of gray. So you see nothing but gray. And this book does a really good job of like capturing that and the idea of sort of like almost not exactly cabin fever, but sort of like being trapped in a situation so it's like this little boy, Oscar, and he's really bullied. He's not very happy. And he basically makes this friend who it becomes increasingly clear that the friend is a vampire and kind of like their friendship and also sort of like questions of like morality and stuff. There's also a movie version of it. There's a Swedish version and an American movie version. Just watch the Swedish version. Yeah, we've seen the Swedish one. Yeah. The American version is apparently very similar, but they said it in... They said it in, like, fucking Arizona or something. So, like, with so much... You lose all that atmosphere. Yeah, just... Well, also just having a, a night that lasts for months seems like an important part of a vampire story. Yeah, because, like, you don't need to worry about the sun or anything. But just watch the Swedish version. If you don't like reading subtitles, there is, like, a dubbed version of it. So you can just watch that instead. And if you don't want something that's really dark, I mean... The film's still pretty dark, but it's actually, like, less dark than the book. So if you want something a little lighter, I like, the film's also really good, too. In the book, there's Ellie, who's sort of, like, Oscar's vampire friend. And she has this caretaker called Hokan. And it seems like maybe he she met him when he was her age, and now he's grown up. It's kind of a little ambiguous what their relationship is. 
in the book, he is a straight-up pedophile who wants to have sex with Ellie. And it just goes from there. So if that's not something you're interested in listening to, the movie's really, really good. But yeah, I'm really enjoying the book so far, and the whole time I've been reading it, I've just been like, wow, wish Nightblood was a lot more similar to this. Yeah, I should have read a vampire story too, I guess. Well, but I was concerned that I would mix them up. <laughs> so. You probably would not have yeah, had that. It seems like I would not have. Um, and also, I would recommend Carmilla. It's like the second Western vampire story. And it's about like this young woman. And she kind of this mysterious young woman named Carmilla comes to stay at her estate. And then dark, mysterious things start happening. It's great. And... I love it. It's obviously problematic because it's like from the Victorian era and like being a lesbian is evil, but whatever, that's more representation than almost anything else from that era. Right. Well, I think we've thoroughly ranted and raved about Nightblood. Now I can remove all this information from my brain and never think about uh, this book ever I hope again. it doesn't stick in my brain like Hobgoblin the Bond Club. <laughs> I still cannot forget those books. <laughs> I just don't know whether to throw it out or to give it to a secondhand bookstore. It <laughs> like some kind of curse. Yeah. <laughs> you have to pass it on to it's, someone yeah, else. It, it feels wrong to just throw out a book, but this is so bad. I'm tempted to. I don't think many people made it past chapter one. You talked about Zebra earlier, and I really do genuinely think most people bought it for the cover and got about 20 pages in. And like about 15 pages deep of Val doing nothing but philosophizing. And we're like, I don't think so. Goodbye. Yeah, if you're not doing the podcast, I feel like a lot of these, it's like, nope, not doing it. If you'd like to join us for November, we're doing a two book special. We have The Nemesis from Terra by Lee Brackett and Collision Course by Robert Silverberg. Would you like to flip to see who has the oh. pleasure of reading Lee Brackett and the displeasure of reading Robert Silverberg. All right. Okay. Tales. Tales you get, Lee Brackett? Yeah. Awful flip. What is it? Heads. Yes. Oh, no. So I will be reading The Nemesis from Terra by Lee Brackett, and Mimi will be enjoying Collision Course by Robert Silverberg. You can contact us at dumpsterbookclub at gmail.com or join our group on Goodreads. Do you say anything to Elaine? Like, thanks for doing this horrible thing with us? <laughs> I actually... Uh, I'm sorry, Elaine. Yeah. <laughs> We're both really... We feel really bad about what we've done. I actually brought a nice cheese for you guys because I felt bad about how much you guys would have to be cutting from this when I got angry and started ranting. So I apologize as well. We're all we're, just very sorry we've read this book. Sorry. <laughs> well, happy Halloween. We're sorry. Most negative we've ever done. So I looked into your eyes. Of a coward that you and I both hate very much And then I grabbed the knife And I left the blood